Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. And here we are again. We started this podcast a couple of years ago because we wanted to talk about the general election, which we used to think happened once every five years. On that series, and we used to be called Election then, we had Robert Toombs who came on to talk about Englishness and what English nationalism might mean in the context of a general election. And I'm delighted that Robert is back with us today. We asked him on last week because we were going to talk about France. And we still are going to talk about France because there's lots going on in the world. There isn't just British politics. And we always have to remember that. So we come on to talk about the first round of the French presidential election in a few minutes because it is still the most interesting election currently going on anywhere in the world at the moment. But we're going to say a little bit first about... Theresa May's decision yesterday to plunge us back into British election fever. And we've got, I should say, Helen Thompson and Chris Brickton with us. As someone pointed out to me last night, I need to say already, I mean, we've barely even got into the business of predicting what might happen, that I'm wrong, because I've been wrong for two years, including on this podcast, by saying that I thought the Fixed Term Parliament Act was a very important piece of legislation that changed the dynamics of British politics. And it's one of those things that I can now see that was clearly stupid, but I can only see why it was stupid since Mrs May's decision yesterday, in that it was very useful for a prime minister who didn't want to call an election, because then you have a reason not to call an election, and it's not just politicking. You can say it's the law. But what I didn't realise is if a prime minister decides to call an election, it seems like, I mean, I'm going to check here with Helen and Chris if I'm wrong about this, but it seems like there's nothing the opposition can do. We're recording Wednesday morning. There's going to be a vote later today in the Commons to confirm that there will be an election on June the 8th, and we assume that that will definitely pass, the two-thirds majority needed. Is there anything, once a Prime Minister calls out the opposition and says, I want to have an election, are you up for it or not? Is there anything any opposition could do to say no? I don't know is the honest answer to that question. I think it would be interesting to see what would have happened in this scenario with an an astute Labour leader. Now, you could say if there was an astute Labour leader, we wouldn't be in this scenario because you wouldn't be wanting to have an election. So maybe this can never be put to the test. (laughs) But you would have thought that, at least hypothetically, that an astute opposition leader would at least try and game play through and work out whether it was worth actually saying no. Because it was always thought that what the opposition would be tempted to do would be to force the government to call a vote of no confidence in itself. So you deny them the two-thirds majority, so that's the other route. But what's clear since yesterday is that the Prime Minister still sets the terms of the debate. So once the Prime Minister stands in front of Downing Street and says, I want an election, who's going to stop me? It's really hard for anyone to say we'll stop you because we're scared. But but this is in the context of a particularly compliant parliament. We've got the precedent of the Labour Party voting on the Brexit legislation against the will of some of them, but nevertheless it, um, it waved that through. Theresa May has some sort of confidence that she can get this two-thirds majority. That's a particular context. I think the, the fixed-term parliament Act does make a difference. It forces the Prime Minister to think differently about the decision to go for an early election. It brings in a whole lot of other factors. I think if if there had been a, I don't know, a more robust opposition, it's not necessarily that she wouldn't have gone for it or wouldn't have thought that she could have had that 
two-thirds majority, but her thinking would have been different. So I think it comes on the back of the confidence that she's accrued by being able to push through the, the Article 50. And, and it's striking yesterday, the initial headlines I saw were Theresa May calls election for June the 8th, and then they changed it because they realised she can't, to Theresa May seeks election for June the 8th, but she's still going to get it. It depends, I suppose, if this is seen as a, a precedent for normal political life now and that the Fixed-Term Parliament Act therefore becomes a kind of sham. But after all, this is an unusual situation. There is an argument to say that the government needs a mandate for negotiating Brexit. Uh, what would happen if this was just a sort of run-of-the-mill political situation in which a government in fairly normal circumstances said we're ahead in the polls, why can't we have an election? Then it would be perfectly reasonable for opposition parties to say you're simply cheating. Or as Theresa May would put it, you're playing games with politics. Exactly, yes. So I think we have to see whether this is seen as a one-off or a, or as, as the new norm. And there is talk that the Tories will put in their manifesto to repeal the fixed-term parliament. I act. think one of the things that we've seen in the last, really, since the 23rd of June is is that a number of the things that were introduced to effectively to change the, the British constitution, leaving aside the territorial questions, have just kind of like fallen away. British politics have reverted back to kind of like the way it used to be in the sense of it's governed usually moderately well by the Conservative Party in terms of these kind of issues. They know how to do them. So they adapted to Brexit very quickly. A leader resigned. They got another one in place very quickly. They actually got considerable party political advantage out of what happened when it could have actually all fallen apart. They then negotiated their way around the Fixed-Term Parliament Act as if it wasn't them in the first place that introduced it. I think the Conservative Party know how to do these kind of things. And they also negotiated the entire Supreme yeah, Court process exactly, as well, yeah, very successfully that, that for them. That was the other example I was going to use, is we didn't have a constitutional court, and then we have one introduced into this process, and actually, ultimately, it was kind of battered aside. It didn't really matter what it decided. But I think there is something consistent here, which is the logic of this idea of a fixed-term parliament is that you are binding the hands of politicians. So you're binding the hands of elected representatives, which de facto, I think, creates the basis for extensive executive power. So what really Theresa May is doing is she's calling out the the spirit of the legislation, which is that it does, I think, disempower the legislature as a whole and empowers the executive. So we're in a world of executive-dominated British politics. She's just confirming the spirit of that bill, I think. And we'll come back to this at the end, because how she's presenting this is very much in her terms about leadership. I mean, she's also used twice, I think, yesterday in her six-minute speech that line, politics is not a game. And the opposition are playing games with politics, which is, given her skill at the game, is exquisite. But it is about leadership, and leadership under any system is about executive power. Let's pivot to France and then come back to this, because the French presidency is also about executive power. So something else I've been troubled by in the last 24 hours is, and again, we have to be careful because we've done this before, talking too much about the betting odds. But I just looked to see yesterday, what what price currently do we have that Jeremy Corbyn will be prime minister after this general election? And it's somewhere between seven to one and eight to one. And then what price is Mélenchon to be the next president of France? And it's somewhere between seven to one and eight to one. Which on the one hand seems right, these are both very unlikely events. But the thing that troubles me is I can't see any scenario. I mean I have to be careful here. <laughs> can't see any scenario in which Jeremy Corbyn is Prime Minister after the next election. But I'm gonna to look to Robert here. There is still a scenario, isn't there, where Mélenchon could win this? Or should I see both of these as actually really remote? Well, I think they are both 
extremely remote, but uh, the difference is that Mélenchon is, is going up. There's a momentum behind Mélenchon. There isn't any momentum behind Jeremy Corbyn, whatever his virtues may be. And so if Mélenchon continues to rise and the, the previously front-running candidates continue to look as though they've peaked, then of course anything could happen. And, and indeed, me as a sort of conservative with a small c worries about a system in which everything seems to be melting down and in which you can no longer really say who the, the leading candidates are, what the main issues are, because you have a sort of cafeteria of candidates who are all focused on, your betting analogy made the point, focused on the result of this election, with practically no discussion about what, what comes next. And it seems to me very, very difficult to anticipate any good outcome from this election, whoever wins it. I saw someone in a Vox Pop who was asked why she was a sort of middle-aged woman, French voter, was voting for Mélenchon, given the things that he's proposing. And she said something like, well, he obviously couldn't do any of it. That's why I'm voting for him. I mean, a lot of electoral politics has this slight feel to it. I felt it a bit with Trump. Mm. That the, the wildness is partly a function of the incredible constraints that these candidates operate under. Maybe this is a ridiculous hypothetical, but say Mélenchon won. Could he do any of this? I mean, what would the French state do to, to, if he wanted to take France out of NATO, if he wanted to put 100% tax rates, if he wanted to dismantle the EU? Well, the French presidency, of course, is an example of an executive-dominated system, but it's one that doesn't work, and it hasn't worked for a very long time. Indeed, arguably, it hasn't really worked ever. De Gaulle, after all, only survived for six years after he was elected. And we've had over and over again the election of presidents who make great claims for what they're going to do and in the end they don't do very much at all because the presidency is such a burden and it's so dominating of political life and the next presidential election starts to be thought about as soon as the last one is over and presidents almost immediately thinking of their own future fall out with their prime ministers and also I mean one could come up with an endless list of I think things that are wrong with the French system of course there are things wrong with every system I don't deny it but they seem to be going wrong badly in France and then you get then a sort of perpetual um, inaction or a continually disappointed expectations and I think now we've got to the point in which the electorate okay I've been in France recently I've talked to people I don't want to make excessive claims for my anecdotal experience but the overwhelming impression one gets is of, of, of an electorate which is completely disenchanted with the whole system in which people say things like I'm not voting for anyone I'm only voting against in which people say I'm not sure I'm going to bother voting at all and I know lots of other people who won't vote I have left-wing friends who say if it's Fillon against Le Pen, I probably won't vote because I don't give a damn. This is entirely new. So I think there are sort of two things that have happened. The whole party system, such as it was, has kind of melted down. And so we have an election which almost everybody is an outsider or who claims to be. And it's very difficult to see how any of them can actually form a government. So the, the presidential election will only be step one, and then there'll be parliamentary elections, of which the outcome is also extremely uncertain. So I think one would have to be a very reckless gambler to put any money on any particular political outcome from this series of elections. And we have three candidates. So Fillon, though he has to present himself as a kind of outsider, nonetheless, he comes from a... There is a sort of established political party structure behind him. But the other three candidates don't have that certainly in parliamentary terms. No. So they would be presidents having to govern with a parliament over which they had very little party hold. Yes. Well, so, so this would be more extreme I even... The Front National has one deputy. Right. 
Macron has no deputies because the party has a new movement. And, and Mélenchon is also a kind of... Uh, yes, I suppose that's... I mean, he could no doubt, he could rely on the left of the socialists, presumably, right. but, uh, I mean, the, none of them is in the position in which we expect British politicians to be after so, winning elections in which they I, command... I was going to say, compared to what we were talking about, <laughs> Theresa May with her, not just a compliant parliament, but a party in parliament, which seems to be extraordinarily united behind her. Yes. And this is the opposite. Well, whoever wins this election will have an awful lot of politicians who want them to fail... Of course, if Le Pen wins, which is not very unlikely, but you know, nothing's impossible now, I think there would certainly be a constitutional and social crisis of a very serious kind. Some people say no. I mean, I've got friends who say, left-wing friends who say, if she won, people are so um, apathetic they wouldn't care. But I think there would be a real political and social crisis if she won. If Macron wins, the left don't like him, the right don't like him. <laughs> OK, so the electorate will have proved to have liked him as being the person who is not... Not any of the other candidates. (laughs) But then he's got to form some sort of government. So either he could be a sort of Hollande number two, which of course his opponents say he would be, or it's hard to see what what sort of basis he would have any support under. The centre doesn't really exist in French politics. There's a right and there's a left. Okay, there's a centre right and there's a centre left, but there is not a centre. And it's very difficult to govern from the centre, I think, because people's deep feelings of loyalty are to one thing or the other. So I, I just don't see what's going to happen. There's going to be parliamentary elections. This will be very incoherent because there will not be the usual practice of the leading right-wing or left-wing candidate being supported by the others. It's, there'll probably be at least three-way contests with the Front National and Macron and the Socialists. And so the outcome is in the likely number of seats, which we won by each faction, is, is again very unlikely. So we'll have an unknown president with an pretty well unknown programme, facing an unknown parliament with an unknown majority or no majority at all. And although the presidency is very powerful, they can't govern by decree, at least not forever. And of course, there's no way of removing a president. So um, we're facing some sort of blockage of the whole system. Chris, you warned us on this podcast, rightly not to write off Fillon. I mean, you've been consistent about that. And of course, that's the one scenario that doesn't, at least has some echoes of a more familiar power structure were Fillon to win. And yet, I mean, I was talking to Helen about this yesterday, it's one of these elections where there's a really good reason why none of them can win, but one of them has to win. (laughs) And obviously with Fillon, the good reason why he can't win is that he should be beyond damaged by the scandal and accusation that surrounds him. So how is he still in the race? I um, base my thinking about François Fillon and the the resilience of his support, which is staggering given the the degree of scandal, on something which it is anecdotal, but it's it's I think quite important. If we go back a few years to the demonstrations and the arguments in France about gay marriage legislation, I remember living in Paris at the time and going for a jog on a Sunday morning in the Bois de Boulogne. Usually it's pretty quiet. You can sort of go for your jog without too many distractions. And through the middle of the Bois de Boulogne, there is this main road. And I was about to cross it and I had to stop because there were all these tourist buses going past. And there was one, there was a second, there was a third. I counted something like 23 or 24. 
and I wondered who on earth are all of these people. And then I remembered that this was the day where there was the anti-gay marriage demonstration, and these were people being bussed in from the provinces to demonstrate. That is female support base. You know, these are very mobilized, very motivated uh, individuals who have a very strong belief in the, the value structure that he sits on and represents. And they're not bothered by the other value structure that he seems to represent, which is so I think, money yes. for fake jobs. Um, I think yes, and I think some people have been turned off, but clearly that's a sort of a, a fringe group. Some of the, the ones who've been most put off are people who are sort of establishment figures themselves. But for his core base, where it really is about values and what he represents, and if they buy into his economic program, which is clearly, I think, the most radical, maybe with the exception of Le Pen, but his economic program is radical, then you have a pretty strong support for, for Fillon. The question is how far that can actually go in terms of the numbers. Now, we've seen Marine Le Pen have a pretty bad couple of weeks which is very good for François Fillon. I think Macron's not had a particularly good run into the first round either. So Fillon's support starts to look a bit more solid. And this is in a context where the polls really haven't moved at all. You know, when journalists look for a narrative around these elections, they try and tie it to people who are going up in the polls, down in the polls. Clearly, Mélenchon's gone up a certain amount in the polls. But essentially, the other three candidates are just bouncing around within the margin of error and have been all the way through 20, 21, 22, 23%. I mean, there isn't really any movement at all. The other thing is, is the don't knows aren't moving at all either. They've been pretty constant around a third. So you would expect this close to an election that they would be breaking, but that goes back to the point actually that Robert made earlier, is is that that doesn't look like it's happening. So there's an awful lot of votes. People are either going to not vote vote or going to make their minds up right at the end. But where I would disagree with Robert a little bit is the immobility or the stasis that you were describing, the sense of crisis. There's also a sense, I think, of of change or of recombination going on here. I mean, the big story, I think, in France, at least in terms of driving the the run-up to this first round, has been this terrible de- decline of the Socialist Party. Mm. There was a bit of talk when Benoit Mont was first sort of victorious in the in the primaries that he was a you know, a good bet. Um, slightly different, a bit more to the and left. And he's running on a fairly left programme, and he's the one pushing for a universal basic income and That's that right. kind of thing. That's right. And he did surprisingly well immediately afterwards, and then just this complete collapse. And he's been outflanked by Mélenchon on every front. Entirely. And But we have to remember, Mélenchon, last time round, had... You know, this dramatic rise, he was he started to nibble at 15%. There was a lot of momentum behind him, a lot of excitement. He was giving these open-air sort of um, speeches, and then he just... Holograms this time. He didn't have time, holograms was, last time. That's right, he didn't do that last time. But then it tailed off, and there was a real sense of defeat around him. So this time is different because the socialist candidate is just... Um, there's no way and so he's picking up lots of votes but I do think he's picked up as many as he could I think it'd be very difficult for Mélenchon to to get through and Helen when we were talking about why none of them can win although one of them has to win and the reason you said it's so hard to see Macron winning is if you just frame him as he was the finance minister in the government of the most unpopular president in the history of the republic I mean that is not a great calling card for being the candidate of renewal following that presidency. I mean, and I'm, yet he's, yeah. still the, he's still the likely winner. One way of looking at it is to say, OK, what's happened to the so- Socialist Party? And I think there is a way of saying, look, the Socialist Party, if you go back to the mid-2000s, actually has three candidates in this presidential race. And one of them is obviously the official Socialist Party candidate. But then there's Mélenchon, who was in the party in the mid-2000s. He left essentially over the EU constitution and what became the Lisbon Treaty. And then there's Macron himself. 
who was not only in the party then, but was Hollande's Minister for the Economy, I think is the right title for it, and was responsible for some of the most unpopular legislation that was pushed by the Hollande government. Indeed, one of them, it was the Labour law, had to be put through by decree because there was insufficient parliamentary support for it. So in that sense is, is that what Macron represents is a, you know, charismatic, or supposedly charismatic anyway, better-looking Hollande Mark II. <laughs> and that is, is, is neither a renewal candidate. I mean, that was this second government that Hollande formed was after Hollande Mark I, who'd been all for, oh, we're going to have southern solidarity, we're going to stand up to the Germans, we're going to change the terms of monetary union, and all fallen away. And this is like, OK, we're going to reform things, we're going to make the economy more business-friendly, we're going to be more like the German economy, that will get us back to parity with the Germans. Well, it won't. And that's just not a possibility any longer. So once you strip out all the rhetoric and hyperbole around Macron, then I don't think he represents anything that's actually subversive to the system at all. Yeah, I agree. In fact, he's going to be the saviour of the system. Probably. If he wins. Or, if he gets through to yeah. the second round, because then it'll be him against Le Pen. And, of course, the normal f- practice would be then for all the sort of so-called Republicans, you know, the people who are anti, who think of themselves as more than anything else anti-Le Pen, anti-fascist, would rally to him. And you'd have a repeat of Chirac's victory over Jean-Marie Le Pen. It's just that so many people seem now to be... Um, saying that in such cases they won't vote. That's the only doubt. It is, because I think that actually the, that position is just hollow, is, yeah. is that it's just been defeated too many times yeah. for Macron to come along and present this as something new and that's actually going to change anything. It's just yes. not a believable promise any longer. It's not been believable for a long time, but now it's just hollow. In my view, it would be just a defensive vote against Le Pen. Mm. There is the risk of missing something here. I don't know whether, Robert, when you were in France, you spoke to these Macronistes, and I should say our local Macronist, Hugo Drochon, who would normally be on this podcast, is in France, right. doing whatever it is that they do around this time before the election. Well, there's a certain sort of fervour and a sense of mission and purpose and a sort of something messianic about this movement around, uh, around Macron um, at the moment. We shouldn't underestimate what he's done. I mean, he has managed to do something that nobody expected him to do. He always says it's about you, it's not about me, although he talks about himself a lot. You get the sense of it being a citizen-driven movement something quite new for France, entirely outside of the party structure. The sense of fervour and excitement around Macron, I think, is quite considerable. And so if if we put this election in the context of the collapse of mainstream politics and mainstream party structures, then Macron is the anti-system candidate who is, you know, perfect for it. It's exactly the right time for somebody like him. So I think think that'll be enough to get him through, even though... I absolutely agree with with Helen and what we've been saying. If you look at what he's going to do, practically speaking, it's a warmed up version of what's already been tried before. I don't see any basis for it succeeding. I don't even think it's a particularly good set of ideas either. But if you take the content out, there's something you know. Going you take on. the content out; it's great. The, the form, the form is is pretty you know is pretty exciting for many people. I wonder how many. That's the only thing. I mean, I still think he's likely to win. I mean, I think he's the most plausible candidate and will no doubt get a sort of honeymoon period afterwards and will no doubt have quite a lot of pro-Macron deputies elected into Parliament. But how long that will last, that's what I would be doubtful about. And how much real substance there is. Well, I mean, you you perhaps suggested there wasn't an awful lot. And therefore, what will we get over the next few years? And Robert, can I ask you, just in a broader context... So, so as you said, it looks like the, the, the main story here is a kind of blockage in the system of some kind, even though 
there might be movement in the types of candidates we're getting and people coming from outside the party structure, but the system itself looks frozen in various ways and there's this huge disenchantment. And there is a sense that at some point something's got to give. And it could give in France or it could give in a wider European context. And that, you know, that this is one of us, as we keep saying on this podcast, a series of elections. We've now got another one, the British one to throw, and we've got the German election. If you look over the next five years, where do you think the real pressure points are going to be for France or for Europe? If politics like this is frozen in the way that it is, I mean, it can't be frozen forever. No. Is it the European project as a whole that's going to have to give? Or is it possible that France could change the way its political system works? I mean, the Fifth Republic, I think, is a system with great disadvantages, which I referred to earlier. But then it is the system that has lasted longer than any other since the Third Republic. It's the first system that, for some years, was generally accepted as a constitutional system, with no major opposition to it. And now several candidates say they want to change the system, but the suggestions for changing it are really quite... Uh, small, you know, that there should be, for example, a president should only be able to be elected for one term, which doesn't seem a very viable option, or that there should be somewhat greater powers to parliament, or that there should be proportional representation in parliament, which of course sounds very good in theory, but it would certainly mean you'd have a big Front National representation in that case. So I I don't think anyone has got any ideas, as far as I know, for changing the system, or indeed that there's any agreement about how the system ought to be changed. And I think that the worrying thing, perhaps I'm too pessimistic, and I'm glad that Chris is not so pessimistic as me, but there's an awful lot of complaining about things not working properly. Every bookshop in France has piles of books on how France is going to the dogs and so on. But But wasn't that that always true? It's it's been true for some years now. But, of course, what there is not is any agreement about what needs to be done or any possibility of building a consensus about doing anything and that the system itself seems to make the creation of a consensus very difficult I was trying to think what would be the British equivalent of this election if we had a presidential system and it would be you'd have George Osborne Paul Nuttall Diane Abbott John MacDonald George Galloway I mean that would be the kind of list of candidates we'd, we'd be facing I can't see any way in which the things that the French people feel are wrong can be put right, or that they even know they agree what those things are, or that they agree about what what should be done. And the political system doesn't seem very good at producing answers to put before them. I don't think it's just so the political system. I think it's, I agree, the political system is part of it, but I think it's a product of France's position in the EU, and I think it's the product of France's economy in relationship to Germany, and not just monetary union, but what preceded monetary union. We kind of could tell the whole story from like Mitterrand's U-turn in 1983 of these failed attempts to try and do essentially the same thing and here we have a lineup of presidential candidates who are all saying in their different ways oh things need to be different we need to reform the euro or some of them say we need to reform the euro and if we can't we should get out of it or Macron sort of saying I can reform the euro I will be different than everybody else without giving any clear idea why he's going to be different than anybody else so it's not just, I think, that there's an institutional status. There actually is a practical policy problem that they keep facing over and over again for getting on for three decades now, and they don't know the way out of it. But there is a question about how sustainable this is, because I think there is a pattern, which is you have this domestic crisis, this collapse in political consensus at the national level, the inability for parties to really speak for, for people. You have these increasingly unpredictable elections, the growing illegitimacy of, of national political figures. So this sense of disenchantment grows and sort of becomes a real factor in politics, you know, time after time. 
And then you have this wider context, this wider European framework that seems unable to change and unwilling to change. And there's no agreement on how it might change. And I don't think that's really sustainable. The best example, I think, is Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who has this project for the Sixth Republic, so a refoundation of the French Republic through a constituent assembly. All of the things he describes as political change would necessarily imply a complete transformation in France's relationship to the European Union. And to be honest, I think exit, really, I mean, the kind of constitutional change he's proposing is very difficult to imagine taking place within the EU. Now, he doesn't really go that far. He says he wants to have a a discussion about changing France's relationship. But it does seem to me that you can't really have both, which is stasis and stability and continuity at the European level, which everyone talks about, and then projects for radical change at the national level. So where that's going to go, I'm not sure. But those two things can't continue, I don't think. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are going to talk a little bit later on this podcast about another election that happened. Well, not an election, a vote in Turkey at the weekend with Aisha Zarakol. There's so much to talk about. I just want to come back to the UK election finally. And then also before Robert goes, I'm going to ask him for his prediction for the final two. In fact, I think we should all give our predictions. Yeah, we'll see about that. So in the UK context, one thing that is different, and this is part of, as we talk about a lot on this podcast, there is a general, I think it's fair to say, crisis of established democracies around the world. And the French is a particularly acute example of it at the moment. In the UK, though, we have a much more conventional looking election coming up. And the way Theresa May framed it in her speech outside Downing Street yesterday does make the UK different from some of these other ones. Because she said the British people, of course, it's partly about Brexit, but that we were being offered a choice between two kinds of leadership. And our system allows us to choose between these two kinds of leadership, one of which is essentially a majority party in Parliament, the Conservative parties with a significant majority able to get on with the job or whatever that means. And the alternative given, I don't think anyone in this country, anyone thinks that Labour will win an outright majority. The alternative, which is a messy coalition, And as she said, last time you were, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, last time you were scared of Ed Miliband and Nicola Sturgeon, this time it would be even worse. You would get Corbyn plus Sturgeon plus the Lib Dems because Corbyn plus the SNP isn't going to be enough. And then you've got not only a very unstable politics, but a bunch of people who want to turn back the clock on Brexit thrown into the mix as well. So that message probably last time in 2015 was very effective political scientists differ about this, but I think it's fairly clear that it was a big part of the Tory appeal, which was to say it's us or it's this mishmash Labour SNP. Is there any reason to think it won't be even more effective this time when you throw the Lib Dems into the mix? I think the only thing you can say is is, is that last time, because the polling was wrong as much as anything else, there was some genuine fear of a Labour government. And so that fear could be pressed upon. Now, for the reasons that you said earlier, if no one can actually believe that Jeremy Corbyn could be Prime Minister, 
then the fear just might not work in the same way. So it's not that people, if they would really thought about it and thought it was a possibility, wouldn't be, or enough people wouldn't be like, we're not having that outcome, particularly, obviously, English voters and leave parts of the country. But for them to get to that point, they've got to think that there's a real risk that it could happen. And if they don't think there's a real risk that it could happen, then some people who might be inclined to vote Conservative, if they believed in the threat of a Labour government, might think, I can vote Liberal Democrat, particularly if they're a Remain and Tory, because that will mean that there'll be a, more of a check on what the May government will do. So it's really a kind of, it's a psychological game, is, is are people going to feel... is not a yeah. game, Helen. <laughs> a psychological, let's say... If we just isolate it down to a kind of a Tory remainer, which do they fear most as a genuine fear? The possibility that Jeremy Corbyn somehow could be Prime Minister or that Theresa May will go off in a harder Brexit direction. Not that I like the term harder Brexit, but in a f- further to the right than they want her to do. Well, presumably the answer to that is, I mean, the thing that, that would make them most unhappy is a Corbyn Prime Ministership. But the thing that they actually want to prevent because they think it's a real threat is a hard Brexit. I think this argument is going to be even more effective this time than last time. Because I think what Theresa May is offering is not really the Tory party. It's not really a Tory government. It's an effective government. And if you're in an age where people are really unhappy with the party system, don't have much faith in party traditions, aren't very committed ideologically, then the difference is a government that's able to deliver versus stasis, uh, confusion, ineffective government. So I think she's understood that. And I think she's trying to, in some way, even though she's playing part of the party political game, absolutely. And this is, I think, at the heart of it is about strengthening, you know, Tory rule, having a stronger Tory government. But the way she presents it is about something else. And I think that's going to appeal. Well, I, I agree more with what Chris and David have said about the strength of the government's position. What Helen says, I, could, I can imagine happening in a place like Cambridge, but not yeah. you know, with a highly sophisticated and unstable mm-hmm. electorate, and not everywhere else, where I think people probably vote for the, a, a party they think will be able to govern and so on. Of course, the other thing is obviously Scotland. Without Scotland, can Labour ever have a majority? Probably not. And it makes the Tories more than ever seem like an English party. Or in, and, of course, if they appear to be the English party over Brexit, then they stand to, of course, to gain a lot of votes, I would have thought, from Labour uh, regions in which Brexit was was supported. And, and though, of course, Scotland is a huge problem for Labour, it is worth pointing out, John Curtis was saying this yesterday, that the days when a huge polling lead could lead to this massive majority in Parliament, say, as in the Blair years, did always assume that Scotland was part of the swing. And the Tories may do a bit better this time in Scotland. I think that's got to be possible. But basically, Scotland is out of it. It's really hard to get one of those absolutely thumping majorities just on the basis of effectively English and Welsh seats, because Northern Ireland is out of the equation too. And again, the Tories might do quite well in Wales, but they're probably going to lose seats in the southwest. And actually, it's really hard. Certainly, Theresa May could increase a majority. But to get what the polls maybe indicate, this kind of either Blair-style wipeout of the Tories or Thatcher-style wipeout of Michael Foote's Labour is really hard. It is. I mean, the one place I think the Tories will do particularly well and you know, I think Labour will do particularly badly is the Midlands. I think there's quite a lot still of seats that the Tories can pick up really quite easily in the Midlands and I think Labour under Jeremy Corbyn is toxic in the Midlands. As you say, they can pick up some seats probably in North Wales but there have to be some risk that they're going to lose some of those seats to the Liberal Democrats. Not necessarily, I think... Some of the South West seats, but some of the the London seats. 
rinse cables, for instance. But as you say, there's not that many of them where you say, okay, there's a high remain vote and the Liberal Democrats are the main challenges to the, the Conservatives. But I'd be surprised if there were no losses to the Conservatives out of this. And it will be interesting to see, so we got the vote this afternoon, how many MPs this afternoon vote for an election in which they're going to lose their seats? <laughs> because quite a few will, um, and certainly quite a few Tories will. I mean, not a huge number, but a certain number. Because again, you can't be the one who says, I don't want an election under these conditions, because it's like saying, I'm going to lose. Right, Robert, who's going to be in the final two, do you think? Can I just say, I mean, this is stating the obvious, but our system gives huge advantages to an organised and united minority. That's what usually governs us. In France, that doesn't happen. And so when people say, well, France needs... And some people do say, you know, we need a French Thatcher, you need a French uh, a movement that will reform France. The fact is it's very difficult to see how any any such movement can actually win a majority and can actually win the president in a two-round system in which you actually require to win more than 50% of the vote. Anyway, but having said that, who are going to win the last two? Well, I've always thought it was going to be Le Pen and Macron, and I still think it will be those two, and I still think that Macron will win. But I'm not so sure about that as I was a few weeks ago. Chris? I thought that it would be, as Robert says, Macron. I think Fillon will be able to sneak in uh, as well. Helen? I'm torn. Um, last night I was sort of stated in our informal discussion of Fillon and Le Pen. I'm not so sure this morning, partly because I thought about some of the arguments that Chris was making last night about um, Macron, but I, if I really forced, I'll stick with what I said last night, but I do think that Fionn has been the one who's been underestimated and that he's got a better chance than it, than it looked a week ago of being in the in the last two. Yeah, and I, so we did last night, We everyone involved in this podcast went out for a drink to sort of talk about state of the world um, and I did a little straw poll there were about 12 13 of us around the table and every permutation was offered by someone except no one thought it would be Mélenchon Le Pen the nightmare scenario for the kind of the establishment and so I'm not going to say that just to be contrarian because I don't I've, I, I'm persuaded by Chris's argument that Mélenchon has probably peaked so I, I actually think it will be I mean I think if anyone's support is flaky it's presumably Macron so I'm going to go with Le Pen Fillon. Thanks very much to Robert, Helen and Chris. Of course, we're going to come back to all of these things, France, and we will be talking about the British general election, it feels like, for a long time. But finally this week, uh, we wanted to catch up with Aisha Zarakol about Turkey, because in some ways, the most significant vote that happened anywhere recently was the one this weekend, the referendum in Turkey, about dramatic changes to the constitution, which would, and we've just been talking about executive power, hugely empower the president of the republic and effectively give him authority over parliament and indeed over the courts as well in some respects. And Erdogan won this vote. Actually, you're going to have to give me the figures, <laughs> but it's sort of fifth. <laughs> okay, first of all, allegedly, we'll come on to that. But it was it was quite similar to the Brexit result, wasn't it? It was sort of 51 and a half, 48 and a half. But so, as you say, allegedly. So first question, do you see this as a real vote? It's not a real vote for two reasons. The lesser reason is that there are serious allegations of electoral fraud. But even leaving that aside, the campaign did not really happen under normal conditions. Turkey has been under state of emergency conditions since July 21st. And uh, tens of thousands of people are in prison the no campaign couldn't really campaign and 
there is serious water intimidation, especially in the southeast. So under these conditions, you can't really talk about a real election or a real referendum. So given that, 48.5%... It's amazing. A, it's a great result, right? Yeah. I mean, how, how did that happen, in a sense? So that the, the media were tightly controlled. Many of the opposition leaders were in jail. Yes. Um, parts of the country were not able to vote in a fair way. There's the suspicion that some of the votes were fraudulent. And still, it was incredibly close. It was. And I think it shows that Erdogan's narrative is is not working anymore. I think it also shows the level of discomfort most Turkish voters have with this regime change. And the discomfort is with him or with the idea of anyone having that kind of power and authority? Because it does look... I mean, we have to be careful about the words we use, but it does look semi-dictatorial. It, it is. Almost all checks and balances on the president are removed. So, yeah, I, I think that's a fair characterization. So is the fear of any dictator or is it the fear of this man as dictator? I think it's, it's both. For a certain segment of the population, it's definitely fear of Erdogan. But I think even among Erdogan's regular base, there was a discomfort with the idea of somebody, anyone having this type of... Uh, almost unlimited power. So the defections from Erdogan's party, I think, happened for that reason. And one of the striking things looking at it from the outside is that we got used to looking at series of elections around the world, in the States, Brexit here, maybe our general election, the French election that we've just been talking about. And there are these divisions that aren't conventional party divisions. For instance, for want of a better phrase, town versus country. Uh, university educated versus not university educated. And large numbers of people in Turkey do go to university. It's a a big part of the public sector. University graduates were overwhelmingly against Erdogan's proposals. Non-university graduates were very strongly for. Istanbul, the big cities were against. The rural areas were very strongly for. So are these divisions the same ones that we see in, in the West? In a way, yes. I, I think one of the remarkable things of our time is that seemingly uh, dissimilar phenomena are happening for similar reasons. Or t- to put it a better, better way, the demographics, as you say, actually match Brexit demographics. They match what happened in the US. And I think in other contexts, most major cities, as you said, uh, voted no in Turkey. And, yeah, educated and uh, uneducated gap also matches. I think it's because, in the Turkish case particularly, there was almost no debate about the constitutional changes. So it's more educated people, those in the cities with access to internet, etc., had a better chance of actually finding out what the changes were for. And I think possibly that's, that's an explanation beyond usual demographic political leanings. So in a way, are the divides bigger, therefore, in Turkey? I mean, we're not, so we're not just talking about different worldviews or outlooks. What you just described there is simply a fundamental information gap that we've got large sectors of the population who are simply not hearing anything like the same stories that the people who live in the cities, the people who have access to certain kinds of networks are hearing, that there's actually just a gulf in in what people are exposed to. In a way, that's true, but isn't that just a more exaggerated version of what happened in the US or during Brexit? 
So I think it's a matter of degree. Another question is how this is then going to play out. So if this result was surprisingly close, does that give you encouragement if you are, and I think we we can assume that we both are on this side here, anxious about what an Erdogan victory in this referendum means for not just Turkish democracy, but for that region? Yes. I thought I would be more depressed after the referendum because I did think that the gap was going to be much wider given the conditions. But these results are strangely hopeful. It's it's as if, you know, you invite me to a boxing match, but uh, my hands are tied behind my back and I have to be blindfolded. Meanwhile, you can, you know, wield knives and such. And uh, I live to you know, round seven, (laughs) round seven, or, you know, see another day, it shows that maybe you're not as powerful as it seemed before the match. So the fact that so many people voted no under these conditions means that there is a genuine opposition in Turkey to this type of regime. It's just a matter of organization. But then is there any way of reversing these changes? And, And as I understand it, so you'll have to explain this, but so, so the changes don't come in straight away. And there has to be another election that is a presidential and parliamentary election before the changes come into effect. Most of the changes. So so were there to be a genuine opposition to Erdogan, he might not be the beneficiary of the, this change? Is that possible? It is possible. I mean, he's won for the moment, but he's been exposed as weak. And most of the changes will kick in in 2019. And two years is a very long time in Turkish politics. Um, It's a long time in any politics. But especially in Turkey, uh, given what has happened the last two years. So I think it's going to be difficult times ahead. But um, there's more reason to be hopeful now than there were even two weeks ago. So if the question is, the opposition needs to be organised, how would that happen? So you can be weak, and it, and this does relate to what we've just been talking about, say, with the French election, where none of the candidates will win, but one of them has to win. You can be weak, but you can still carry on indefinitely as long as the opposition are weaker. So is there a way in which the opposition could be organised so as to actually not just signal resistance, but overthrow the regime? It's unlikely, but I think... The referendum drives home the point that this time it's do or die. I mean, if if the opposition doesn't organize, basically Turkey is stuck with some kind of hybrid uh, populist dictatorship. And the opposition has two years uh, until 2019 to get its act together. Maybe this will be enough of an impetus. Of course, it's very difficult conditions, given the fact that most, you know, most of the charismatic leaders the opposition has produced in the recent years are either in prison or, you know, possibly facing legal charges. But it's not completely hopeless. Let's, <laughs> that, that's, all, that's all I can say. We talked about a lot this week. We are going to be focusing over the next six weeks on the British general election. It's what we started off this podcast to do. It's what we enjoy doing. We've got masses to talk about. We'll be doing a few extra spin-offs as well, some Facebook Lives and other things. We've got lots of interesting people to talk to, and we are genuinely excited about the next six weeks, even if we get some of it wrong. Do please listen in the various ways. We're going to share what we do and join us again next week for more discussion. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Mm-hmm.
to go and have an expensive breakfast in Cafe Nero, which I've forgotten how expensive it is because I forgot to buy anything. It's because of Brexit, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> the reason that your croissant costs so much. And there was no small bottles of orange juice, so I had to buy a large one, which very much annoyed me, given how expensive that's, that's it already was. That's also because of Brexit. I'm not <laughs> no, no, sure no. how it is. The, the small ones appeared five minutes after I paid for my large one. That's not because of Brexit. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.